Our sermon text for today is Philippians 1, 27 through 30. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, not afraid in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw that I had and now hear that I still have. This is the word of the Lord. This series through Philippians has just been so encouraging and transforming for my own soul as I memorize it with many, many of you and get to dive into what the, every single word means. It just, I hope it's doing the same thing for you as it is for me. So before we can explore this beautiful word, let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, there are many things battling for our affection, battling for our attention, many arguments that strive to draw us in, many things that seem so important to us that we want to engage. I pray, God, that the truth of the gospel would shine so brightly in and through us that it would drown out every other reality. As we work, as we play, as we take care of our homes and our families. I pray every one of these things would point to the vast importance of knowing Christ and making him known. And would you use this word now to make that happen in every single soul in this room? Amen. Over 240 years ago, the American colonists decided, declared, that they were going to begin a new nation. Putting together ideas that had never been tried before in a country. These ideas were codified in our founding documents, the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, and the Bill of Rights. These documents are supposed to define what our country is all about, what our country values, and it's supposed to shape every citizen's identity. These are the ideas that we claim to care about. Justice, freedom, equality, decentralized power. Everyone who lives in this country is supposed to reflect these realities and model them in their lives. And if we come to find that something that we do as a nation doesn't reflect those ideas, then we make laws to try to guide us closer to that. And if someone decides they're not going to submit to these principles, then in some way or another, we remove them from society. And then every couple of years, we get to have elections where we decide who is going to best represent these values, who will uphold these values, who will inspire all the rest of us to pursue those values in our own lives. But as our country has aged beyond 200 years, We have done what every other nation in history has done. We've fallen away, gotten far away from our founding principles. This has been true of every nation 
since the beginning of time, of Babylon, of Israel, Rome, China, even America today, yes. Ever since Adam and Eve declared independence from God. But then 2,000 years ago, God intervened in an incredible way to start a new nation that would change the course of history. The Son of God, who lived forever in eternity, came down, became a man, and lived a perfect life. He died a rebel's death, but rose from the dead to start this new kingdom of people who, instead of over time going farther and farther away from their founding ideals, grow into them and reflect them more clearly throughout their lives. This is the truth that we call the gospel. Gospel, that word means it's an announcement of good news, a proclamation, a declaration of independence. Independence from oppressive worldly systems or oppressive fleshly desires. It declares to the world that true and lasting justice, freedom, prosperity, equality can only come in surrendering to Christ and joining, pledging allegiance to his kingdom. The gospel is our declaration of independence. And Christ revealed throughout his whole word, this is our constitution. The Bible describes our king, who he is, what he has done. It declares to the world who we are, how we relate to one another, and how we fit in this world. Jesus died and rose again to start a new nation, to shape a people together who would model these founding ideals throughout our lives. And as we move to this next section of our journey through the book of Philippians, we see a transition in Paul's teaching toward this goal. How are we to live as faithful subjects of King Jesus? So far, Paul's just been talking about his own experience, his prayers, his desires, his sufferings, his affections, And now in verse 27 and then into chapter 2, he's going to tell us how we ought to live, what he expects of the church. He's saying that these ideals that have marked his own life are the ideals that should mark every follower of Christ. And so he exhorts us to let our lives make our kingdom allegiances clear. Let your life make your kingdom allegiance clear. The way that a local church like you behaves and speaks everything you do and say to one another and in public ought to proclaim the truth of these founding documents that our allegiance is to Christ and His church and His kingdom alone. These four verses are just packed full of wonderful, exciting, inspiring truth towards that end. In the first half, verses 27 and 28a, we look at what our kingdom identity is. What are the ideals that distinguish us as citizens of a heavenly nation? And then 38b, halfway through 28 through 30, these inspire us to go to work on Christ's election campaign. What will be the results when we embrace this kingdom identity? This is a really important word for us, I think, at this time in the middle of an election season. So let's pay careful attention and heed these words to embrace this kingdom identity. Go back 
and read those powerful words again with me. Verses 27 and 28. Paul says, Only, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. The, the very first line of this new section of, the, of Paul's letter sets the tone for the entire exhortation in the chapters to follow. So we're going to slow down just a little bit and look at it really carefully. And first he uses the word only. Only. Now that he's getting to this main exhortation, there's one thing that he wants this church to be known for. Whether the, he comes to see them or hears reports about them, he wants to see and hear about one thing. Only this thing. If people are to watch your life, if they're to hear things that people talk about you, what should they hear about? Paul says it should be a life worthy of the gospel. The word worthy is a little confusing. It doesn't mean that you have somehow earned the gospel. You have made yourself worthy to receive the gospel. In other places in the New Testament, it's used to mean fit or in accordance with it being consistent with. So Paul says in Acts 26 that you should bear fruit worthy of repentance. It doesn't mean that you earned repentance. It means that my behaviors, my life lines up with what repentance looks like. And so here to the Philippians, he uses it the same way, meaning your life should be worthy, should fit the behaviors, your words should line up with what the gospel is all about. Jesus dying and rising from the dead. So what does he say that will look like? This phrase, let your manner of life, gets us a little closer to the answer. In Greek, it's actually one word that means live as citizens. Display your citizenship in your life. So as I began with the talk about us being American citizens, a, a citizen of a nation is expected to live in a way that's consistent with its founding constitutional ideals. So using this word, Paul is actually speaking to the Philippians. He's drawing on something that's really important to them. In this time, they had been given special status under Caesar in the Roman Empire as a unique city. Caesar had given them this wonderful privilege that allowed them to prosper far more than most of the other cities in the empire. The city was sometimes called a miniature Rome because it reflected so much of the order and the splendor of the great capital city. These citizens of Philippi, they would walk around with their chest out and their heads held high. We're miniature Rome. We're from the Roman Empire. Caesar loves us. They, they felt this great responsibility to go out and reflect the Roman character in their lives. And honor their emperor. But Paul's got something far more glorious in mind than, than the empire, the great and mighty empire of Rome when he tells them to live as gospel-worthy citizens. He uses the same word again in chapter 3, verse 20, saying, our citizenship is in heaven. He's telling the, the Philippians 
that civic pride you feel for being a Philippian, that should be greatly overshadowed by the much more powerful reality that you are a citizen of heaven. Heavenly citizenship is far greater than your Roman citizenship. And Jesus is a far greater king than Caesar. They should live in such a way that whether he sees them or hears about them, the only thing he can hear about, the only thing he finds out is that their lives proclaim their devotion to Christ's kingdom. And the same goes for us in America. No matter what American pride we might feel, what desire we have to make America a great place for people to live, when someone sees us or hears about us, they must see us aligning our lives, our words, our behaviors, our social media posts with the truth that our hope, our joy, our allegiance comes through our citizenship in Christ's kingdom. Heaven is far greater than America. Christ is a much better leader than any president. Is that what we are known for? Is that what people would say is what we talk about all the time? We take pride in so many things. We take pride in our family, our marriages. We take pride in our jobs at the world-famous Mayo Clinic. We take pride in our ethnic heritage, our political affiliation. But Paul says that the one thing, the only thing that should mark our lives is alignment with his kingdom. The gospel of Christ is our declaration of independence, telling us what our lives are to be all about, no matter what else we do with our lives. And so what should we be all about? Obviously, the answer is Jesus. Good Sunday school answer. But he wants to tell us what does it look like for a life to be centered on Christ our King. He lists three things. One, standing firm in one spirit. Two, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And three, not frightened in anything by your opponents. These are the three parts of the kingdom citizenship constitution. How gospel citizens like you ought to relate to one another and this world all around us. So first, he says, standing firm in one spirit. This emphasizes your identity. Who are you at the core? You are immovable in your stand on the gospel. You're not tossed around by doubts, anxious about what might come tomorrow. You're confident Knowing that the Spirit dwells in you because of the blood of Christ. But also notice that this isn't an individual standing. I don't have to do this on my own. It is a unified standing firm in one Spirit. When people look at your life, they see that you are committed to your citizenship in heaven by your commitment to a gathering of people, a body of believers The only thing they can say about you is, man, I don't know how to explain it, but he's really religious because he goes to church all the time and hangs out with those people all the time. The spirit that's in you and in them over there binds you together into a family that holds each other up standing firm. You don't stand firm on your own, but we get close to one another. Oftentimes, a little too close. 
But that's how we stand. We stand firm in one spirit. And then when we stand firm, this unified family, we move forward together on a mission, on mission partnership. The Declaration of Independence doesn't just call us, our gospel doesn't just free us to live in any way that we please, but it calls us to work together with the people in this room toward a fuller expression of Christ's kingdom here on earth. He says, with one mind, meaning all of us, we got our sights set in the same direction. We might work in different places. We might live in different parts of the city, but we are all focused in one direction, our heavenly citizenship. And we strive side by side, meaning we don't leave anyone behind. We don't run out front of anybody. We don't just go off on our own and do it our own way, thinking that, well, I got a better gospel idea than you, so I'm going to go do it. No, we submit our ideas to the church to say, guys, I think this is a great way to go about gospel ministry. We submit our desires, our dreams to the church to say, is this good for me? And I will give everything for your good too. We work together so other people, as they watch us, can see and hear about the unity that the gospel creates, oftentimes among very different and very difficult people. That's what the gospel does. And then third, Paul ends his citizenship constitution by saying, we must not be frightened in anything by our opponents. It's common for us to say that we're not afraid. I hear people say this all the time. Christians, I'm not afraid. I know when I die, I'm going to heaven. We just heard last week, right? To live is Christ and to die is gain. I know where I'm going when I die. I'm not afraid. But it's easy to say I'm not afraid to die. It's much harder to say I'm going to live for Christ. Most of us are actually quite afraid to live for Christ. There's all kinds of potential consequences that make us very uncomfortable. Paul said in his last section, though, if he continues to live in the flesh, if God gives him one more breath, he's going to use every ounce of oxygen for fruitful labor. That is gospel partnership. That is what his life is all about. But we are afraid to give that much. We fear punishment. We fear like some difficulty is going to be added to our lives. Jail, mockery, sickness, abuse. Or we fear loss. We fear the loss of our job, family and friends, comfort, someone else's life that's not ours. We don't like to call it fear. We dress it up a little bit. We call it anxiety. We call it concern. We make it sound really holy and spiritual by saying it's wisdom and it's loving our neighbor. If we're not living the way he called us to live, it's fear. And in verse 20, he calls us to the opposite response of fear. He says, full courage, with full courage. And he defines here what courage is. Courage is this singular focus, utter devotion, complete commitment to gospel partnership with the people sitting right here by you. That is Christian courage. No matter the consequence, no matter the cost, no matter the fallout, this is my priority. This one thing is so important to me that everything else, even if it seems such a big deal, everything else is inconsequential. 
by comparison. That's what it means to only live as kingdom citizens. And these opponents in verse 28, they're not just people who come along and say, hey, will you stop talking about Jesus? I don't like that. In the context, an opponent is anyone or anything that keeps you from joining with the church in joyful gospel partnership, from standing firm, from striving side by side with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Persecution isn't just just being threatened for talking about Jesus. It's anything that prevents you from partnering with the people of God. But if you're a citizen of the kingdom of Christ, the gospel has declared you free from every one of those fears. Christ sovereignly decreed in his kingdom constitution that you are to be side by side with one another in a local church. Not frightened in anything as you pursue that joyful partnership. Because he's confident that God is in control. God's kingdom will overcome. God will vanquish all your enemies. That's this confidence that Paul now sends us into Christ's election campaign in verses 28b to 30. So let's go back and read those again. He says, This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. All of that is from God, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. As you drive around town, you may have noticed a couple of signs in people's yards or maybe up along the side of the road. People pretty confident in telling you how they think you should vote. Who you should vote for. Who your neighbors think will best lead America back towards her founding ideals. It seems like a really big deal because there are signs in every yard and every billboard is plastered with a new face of some political person. There's advertisements on the radio, on TV, on your news feed, on social media. It's everywhere. Everyone's arguing about who's the best, who's the worst. And they tell us, these are critical times. Because this election is going to shape the world we live in, the future of our nation, the world your kids are going to live in. This is so important. It may seem like these are really big matters, but they are nothing, nothing compared to the election that is going on behind the scenes spiritually. I'm not talking about us deciding whether or not Christ will be king. That's already been decided. We don't get to decide that. That's not up for debate. He is king now and forever, no matter who surrenders to him. The election I'm referring to is... God's sovereign choice of who will be a faithful part of his kingdom. Notice at the end of verse 28, Paul says that both the destruction of the unbeliever and your salvation are from God. He is working behind the scenes through all of this chaos we've experienced in 2020, the year where we think back and remember, yeah, our country was a mess. Our world was a mess. He's working through it all to save his kingdom citizens and shape them together for his mission, for his 
campaign. Our job in this campaign then is simply holding up the sign. We're those crazies on the side of the road that are just maybe dancing a little bit, holding the sign, telling them who we stand for. But what is the sign? What does Paul tell us the sign is? The word this right at the beginning of our sentence refers back up to these three characteristics, these attitudes and behaviors listed just prior. It's your commitment to the church, your partnership with one another, and not being swayed by any of these responsibilities, in any of these responsibilities, by anything else. That is the sign that we hold up. That is our proclamation of the gospel. Your allegiance to Christ in his church will have two effects. At the same time, it is both offensive to the world and it is your assurance of salvation. People are going to hate it or they're going to turn to it and love it. This sentence in verse 28 is kind of a play on words. has a couple of levels to it. The world thinks that your unity, your striving to gather and worship together and join hands in ministry is dangerous. They think it's destructive, to use Paul's words. But it actually, he flips it around and says it's actually a sign of their destruction. Throughout history, most persecution hasn't come specifically only because people talk about Jesus. And we just don't like you talking about Jesus, so we're going to kill you. It happens because the church has refused to embrace the culture's priorities. Christians in China don't go to jail because the police don't like when they talk about Jesus in their small groups. They go to jail because they refuse to surrender and pledge allegiance to their communist dictator. The world thinks the church is dangerous to their plans for safety and security and prosperity. But ironically, the more they push against the church and as we strive to stick together, the more they heap up for themselves evidence of their own destruction. The word sign can be translated evidence. So when they stand before God on judgment day, evidence of their rebellion is everything they tried to do to keep the church from gathering, from standing firm, from striving side by side. But for the Christian. This exact perseverance right in the face of all of these trials, that is your assurance, proof of your salvation, right in the face of everything that induces fear. It's a sign for, the, for us that God is calling us to be saved, to continue to call others to be saved. Standing in worship with your brothers and sisters, going out into the world to share the gospel no matter the risk, these things provide you assurance that God is working in you because, verse 29 tells us, he uses the word for, meaning because, it has been granted to you not only to believe, but also to suffer. This is how God plans to make his salvation known to the world. The proof of the power of the gospel at work in your heart is that God both gives you a season of suffering and then also gives you the faith to endure it, to stay near the church so that they, in their faith, can build you up to look to King Jesus together. Suffering plus unified, joyful gospel partnership is the sign we hold up that says King Jesus rules in this place. 
This is our witness to the world. This is how we let our manner of life display the gospel. This is how we proclaim the gospel to the world. It's the pattern for every Christian because it's the ideal outlined in our founding documents. Right in the word. The character of Christ that's now alive in us. It's written on our hearts. We must live this way. And it started with Paul. And will continue in every one of you who profess faith in Jesus. That's what Paul says in verse 30. Every believer will be engaged in the same conflict that he had. He wasn't some special isolated case. He was laying out his life as an example. This is what Christ expects of all of us. He inspires us to the same kind of joyful gospel partnership. God's going to give us all kinds of trials in order to be a sign of the gospel alive in us. Are you going to endure these trials, these attempts to disrupt faithful kingdom citizenship? Will you endure these attempts or will they turn out to be a sign of your destruction? It all comes down to how you understand the gospel. How you understand the gospel will determine which side of the election you are on. Ultimately, our example is not Paul, but Christ himself. The one person who embodies our ideas of our gospel declaration of independence, our kingdom constitution is Jesus. He's the one who lives them out the most fully. Which is exactly then what Paul is going to tell us about in the very next verses that Joe will preach on next week. Paul summarizes what kingdom life looks like, saying, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours. It is yours in Christ Jesus. He's saying, if you believe in Jesus, this mindset, this attitude, this heart is alive in you. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, held on to tightly. It's my right. I deserve it. So I get to go after it. But he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven, on earth and under the earth, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Being a kingdom citizen means that you have that mindset towards God's people, the church. Though he is her king, he became her servant. He took our punishment on the cross. He gave his life so that we could live. He rose from the dead to raise us from the dead so we could be citizens of his kingdom gathering around his throne. Instead of staying up in heaven and calling out to us, hey, come up here. Get up here, guys. You belong up here. Instead, he came down and he got beneath us as far down as he could and lifted us onto his shoulders so that when the father pulled him out of the grave and seats him on his throne, he pulls us right up there with him, held up by his strong back all the way to glory. This is our election campaign in this world, friends. Just like Christ, we are called to die to ourselves. Be willing to give our lives so that everyone else here may live. 
Let your life make your allegiance to Christ clear by serving the church, standing firm, striving side by side with one another. Don't let the world know what your political affiliations are. Don't build a reputation for being part of some movement or another. Don't engage in all the debates about pandemic policies. No matter how foolish or dangerous it looks to others, keep pressing into one another to know each other and care for one another. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel so that Jesus may see of you and hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything. This is our constitution. This is the campaign we were sent on. This is our testimony of the coming judgment and of your salvation. Friends, there's only 23 days left until the election. There's only two more weeks of emergency orders to slow the spread. Maybe. However long these things last, what are you going to be known for that entire time? How will you make your kingdom allegiance clear? By all means, go and vote. Do it. But don't vote in hopes of making America into what God promised for the church. Vote for the people who will just tolerate you expressing your kingdom citizenship, your allegiance to Christ. The American dream wasn't ever promised to us. Justice and freedom, righteousness and mercy only meet in the cross and can only be experienced in his cross-bearing people called the church. So use every right you have, every relationship, every moment at work, every word on Twitter, every dollar you spend to make your allegiance to Christ known by standing firm and striving side by side in joyful gospel partnership. Let's pray. God, there are many things that we can be tempted to be drawn into because we live in the most prosperous, free society that the world had ever seen. To many, it feels like heaven. And yet heaven, the things promised to us are far greater than this. Help us keep our eyes on that. Help us not settle for anything in this life, but run with everything we have toward Christ and the joy set before us in his coming kingdom. We thank you that it's guaranteed for us because of his blood. All for his glory. Amen.